Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and I'm so excited to be joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion over 1980s, Friday the 13th. And of course, we're being so very original and releasing this episode on a Friday the 13th. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> not not June the 13th, but but May the 13th. That's still no. good enough. But that's better than a lot of the films within the Friday the 13th franchise. Not every, I learned from my research, not every film within the Friday the 13th franchise. In fact, a majority of them don't even take place on Friday the 13th. That's so funny. Can you, they just abandoned yeah. the concept after like the first couple. <laughs> I mean, you, you would think that like of the concepts to abandon, that would just be such an easy one to keep, right? Because yeah. every, it's such every a year has detail. a Friday the 13th, I think, right? Like yeah. many years have multiples. So it's not like it only, it's not like a leap year where you're like, well, then my movies can only happen every four years. I mean, it's also it's think like, of the marketing tactics that could have happened yeah. if they had released uh, a Friday, a new Friday the 13th film every Friday the 13th that was See? specifically themed around whatever time of the year it See? was. These Let's... are the big brain moves yeah. that studio executives should have been making with the Friday the 13th yeah. franchise. Let's, let's go back in are. time. <laughs> let's go back in time and we can be like, we have some ideas for you. And then we can just make this, this franchise even bigger. Because, of course, that's the concern, right? Is that it's a pretty... Yeah unknown <laughs> yeah, uh, franchise. This is a pretty indie <laughs> franchise that really did need some workshopping to it from, I really needed a, a team to come in and do punch-up work. That's the last, that's the thing it needed because clearly 42 years later, uh, I, I guess it hasn't had any staying power at all, I oh, say gosh. sarcastically. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, it's it's wild. It really is wild that that this film 42 years in is is still so beloved has spawned so many films and sequels and remakes and video games. I mean, it's just, there's something about this film that really appeals to people. And you, you were talking before we started recording about like how interesting it is. And there's like no, no specific rhyme or reason, no one thing that we can identify. That's what I find so interesting just about cult classics is there's just no predicting. You can say, well, I think these elements, but like I think about Rocky Horror Picture Show or, or even Nightmare on Elm Street, which I adore. But like, again, there's so many films that have done things similar, but there's just something about these films and Friday the 13th is one of them that just touched, <laughs> touched. It captures the imagination yeah, of people. Exactly. It, I, and I think maybe it's just like that. There are so many people like in doing the research for this podcast. I feel like that's the number one question about this film that is people are trying to kind of answer because the general reaction to this film is a lot more mixed uh, upon my reading and my research into it than I think I was aware of because I think I had the most engage direct engagement with a lot of Friday the 13th fans mm -hmm. who and people who just love this film. Mm -hmm. And so like I had always been someone who was like 
not my first time seeing it. I'm kind of, I was kind of so-so on this film uh, yeah. on the first watch. It was This was one of my first fortes into 70s-style pacing mm-hmm. of a film, and I was not a fan. It was way too slow. I was, yeah. uh, we didn't see, the not seeing the killer was not something that I was used to, and mm-hmm. I did not enjoy. I was like, what is this? The kid is a horror, and I, uh, and there's no killer until like the last 20 minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was just so di- so vastly different to what I had originally seen at the time. But uh, so many people just seem to be thinking, asking that question of like, why this film? What about it specifically has caused it to last? Because in and of itself, it doesn't do a ton of original things. There are a lot of elements that are similar to other horror films that have come before it. I mean, like most directly, a lot of Halloween, Black Christmas is another one that this is fairly similar to. And then Last House on the Left. A lot of the crew members and production teams from those three films are all even very similar. So it's not even just like the ideas are similar. It's a lot of the same people working on these films. So is it just these all of these ideas come together at the exact right place, right time kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And I, what I find so fascinating is what you kind of already alluded to is there is no answer. Yeah. There is no one real thing. And the reception of the film at the time, the critical reception was just so, it, it wasn't even lukewarm. It was, yeah. it was very hands down. So there's a, an article in Horror Homeroom, which we've mentioned before, which is a fantastic oh. site that has all sorts of stuff. Great they had, resource. Yeah, they had a special issue on Friday the 13th at 40. And one of the pieces by Todd K. Platts is really just sort of a recitation and thought piece about the critical reception of the franchise. And the first sentence is, it is no secret that critics loathe the films of the Friday the 13th franchise. And then Platts goes on further to say that film reviewers saw it, quote, as a silly, boring, youth-geared horror movie. People, another quote said it would be in and out of the marketplace quick. The Los Angeles Times said that Sean Cunningham, who was the producer and director, had, quote, no respect for a good murder mystery. And then I love this line before mentioning that the, quote, villain is as much of a surprise as a sunburn after a July 4th beach party. And then someone else talked about the fact that Miss Palmer plays the murderer. And by the time she has materialized on screen, she has already killed a half dozen nubile young camp counselors for reasons it would be futile to try to explain. So, you know, I mean, it's not even that it was like critics were like, oh, I mean, I saw it. It was like just this. I saw it. Yeah. I hated it. Yes. And and it continues on. We can look at, we can come back to this for, for the different films in the franchise because he's just cherry picked some some of the best, most horrible criticisms of of these films. So we'll, we'll continue to unpack that later. But before we do that, for people who haven't seen the film or who have seen the film, but it's been a while. Tony, would you be willing to give a brief summary? Absolutely. So the film begins at this old summer camp, and we are treated to a Halloween-esque shot of the killer following, uh, like, just watching this couple engaging in some premarital sex. <gasps> um, yeah, uh, yeah, which, because this is the 80s, means that they have got to die. Well, and, and so these, the story starts in 56, right? So it's even, right. 
they need to die even harder. <laughs> oh, right. So for the audiences in the 80s, they're like, oh, the 50s. Mm, gotta, gotta die. Really gotta die, die. <laughs> so the obviously they are killed. This camp is shut down. But now, dun, 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 the summer camp is opening back up. And we follow this rambunctious group of camp counselors who are headed out to uh, Camp Crystal Lake to open the summer camp. But one by one, they engage in promiscuous activities and are killed by a strange killer uh, who is revealed at the end to be, spoiler alert, <laughs> Jason Voorhees' mother, yes. who is killing all of these camp counselors because her son, Jason, drowned at the summer camp while two summer camp counselors who were supposed to be watching him, were having sex. And so now she is on the prowl to kill any of these devious summer camp counselors, of which there are many. Yes. Uh, and she kills most of them, except for Alice, who outsmarts her, gets away. Right. But does she? Jason's still around. Bum bum. Yeah. And so and, <laughs> and of course, that sets us up for all the, the other films where we're going to have a uh, Jason being our killer instead of Pamela Voorhees. And we have our final girl with Alice, right? Like, so there's so much of this film that is really just following a tradition I first established with films like Black Christmas and Halloween and our sort of early slasher films. And then, of course, I think it is important to acknowledge that this film is also building the foundation upon which future slasher films are are going to be predicated because this film does come out in 1980. And even though, like you said, that opening sequence, the point of view from the killer sort of this quiet, meandering shot. It's 100% from Halloween. There's lots of stuff that that feels very familiar and should. But this film is also probably feels familiar because films have been ripping off this film, right? And and so this is sort of, I would argue, one of the, the top four, right? Black Christmas, Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street, that if you're making a slasher film and you haven't seen these four films you might think that you have a lot of clever new ideas that have already been really carefully laid out for you. Yeah, I think in particular, one of the things that I really liked about this film was I think the inventiveness of the kills yes. upon a rewatch. Like, it didn't appeal to me when I was first forteing into this because I was like, oh, I, it leaves too much to the mind. But now I'm kind of like, oh, it leaves a lot to the mind. That's pretty cool. And I thought that the staging and direction of a lot of the kills particularly any of the ones that involved the arrows were all really well done and had been ripped off for years to yes, come. Yes. Yeah. Tom Savini, right. There's a reason that he's, he teaches special effects, right. Mm-hmm. That because he, mm-hmm. he did so many great things and, and admittedly the, the color match between the prosthetics and the people is, is not as on as I would like it to be, or even as he probably wants it to be in retrospect. Right. But like, it's the scene with Kevin Bacon is just, it's such a good kill scene. Apparently, uh, there was a malfunction during that scene with Kevin Bacon that made it into the movie. <laughs> so like the blood capsule got caught. Oh. And so they had to manually blow into it. Oh my gosh. And that's why that spurt happens. It's because it was someone manually blowing into it. That's fantastic. But it worked so well that they uh, decided to keep it in the original film. That's fantastic. Yeah, I I think that is one of my favorite things about 
these first films in, in all of the franchises, and I'm going to add Evil Dead into the mix. You know, when you're making a film and you have a smaller budget or it's sort of your first horror film or this is truly a project that you're doing with friends, right? So some variant of that. The things that happen are just so much cooler than than these like really slick, high scripted things, because I think that's part of what what makes the film sort of a, a cult classic is is this like just the sheer amount of love because someone had to put their mouth on that tube and like know mm-hmm. that they could possibly breathe in some fake blood. But instead, they were like breathing it out. I mean, you know, someone had to do that. Yeah, I think it's the the manner of how alive a film feels. And forgive me, I may be about to get very abstract <laughs> sounding here. But I think it's like those elements of liveness that are able to be embodied in to certain films like this that make it really feel authentic and true. And it's those moments in which like, like that, like, I felt that that was something that did immediately come to me when I was watching this film is it felt incredibly sincere for a horror film, yes. which is not a word I guess you normally associate with the genre, but it felt incredibly sincere. And just like what you said made with a lot of love because of those little elements like that, that you're like, Oh, this is not perfectly directed. They're just kind of like the cameras following these actors and they're kind of like moving a little bit. So they have to overcorrect and the camera's a little bit shaky, but not in an artificial, like shaky cam, put it on a dolly or whatever and move it, shake it around or whatnot. Like in modern filmmaking, it was like, Oh no, they're just like outside running around with the camera and they have to adjust to kind of follow that actor. And it's those little moments of life in the film that kind of, I I think make this and other films like The Evil Dead, Halloween, Black Christmas, those films stay around in ways that some of the other films kind of faded to the back. Mm -hmm. I think that the casting of so many unknowns as as the actors also helps to create that that sense of sort of authenticity. They they had wanted at various times to to cast some some bigger names. Sally Field was someone they thought about for Alice and like one of the actors is the son of Bean Crosby, but like, that's not, you know, that's not someone that's necessarily known. Really, you know, Kevin Bacon is known now. And then Betsy Palmer is known, I think, in large part because of the role, but she was also doing stuff at the time. But I I think that that adds to it, right? That this was almost just a lark for so many of the actors too. So you can just tell that they're having a good time and they're having fun with it in ways that, that, like you said, feel very authentic and feel very live as opposed to canned. And the casting process was definitely interesting. They wanted to cast Sally Field, but she was way too expensive. Yeah, yeah. They, cause, and they, so they could only afford these unknowns. And Kevin Bacon would, of course, and several of them would throw up, would blow up a little bit after this film. But none of them had done anything previously. And they all kind of talk about that, like, reverence and love to this first film. It's really, it's nice when you can tell that everybody liked being working on a film and project. Yeah, yeah. That is not always true. No. As we've talked about many times on this podcast <laughs> yes. already. And and it's also nice when, because we've also talked about when decisions had to be made because the executive producers or the studio said, hey, we want X to happen. And you know they were like, well, fine, it's going to ruin everything, but whatever. You know, and th- there is something really nice about knowing that, you know, they have this entire vision. I do want to take a moment and talk about some of the scholarship. So I want to give a shout out again to Horror Lex. If any of you are in the need for a good horror database, particularly films, although I have sent an email out to them 
asking if, if they would want to expand into literature and if I could help in some way. But but right now, if there's a film that you can think of and there's scholarship written on it, they will show you what that scholarship is. And there's like 12 pages of of sources for not just Friday the 13th, but of course the entire franchise. So there's some interesting quantitative studies that have been done that I think are are worth thinking about that are not all exclusively on Friday the 13th, but that do bring Friday the 13th in. So there was one article by James B. Weaver that was called Our Slasher Horror Film Sexually Violent, a Content Analysis. And this is just sort of the abstract. They they analyzed 10 slasher films after defining what a slasher film was. And then I thought this was interesting. Their ultimate finding was that although the data reveals that death and destruction are predominant components of slasher films, there is no evidence of a systemic or systematic bias in the appearance or deaths of protagonists as a function of gender. And I think that's that's very true in Friday the 13th. There are other horror films where it's like they make a point of stabbing the woman in the breast or, you know, like something that you're like, well, that was a version of molestation. But this film, yeah. you know, every male, female, you sort of have an equal chance of dying and you have an equal chance of dying in sort of the same ways. So that's actually a really refreshing part, I think, of Friday the 13th is that it doesn't matter your gender. You're, you're still going to like be horrifically yeah. murdered. It's pretty, I, and I, it's not just punishing one party exactly. for the sexual relations. It's like, no, no, no. It's, it's I, I guess, more consistent, more consistently puritanical in who deserve, in who, who it deems <laughs> exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, worthy of death. It's not, a, it's not gendered. It's merely no. about the act. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you know how, I guess, feminists have them. So there's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you like how I had to pause before I could even like say that? Yeah, there's it another. Was it was good. <laughs> there's another article by Haley McCullough that is also a, again, a sort of quantitative analysis. And it's called Be Complex, Be Very Complex, Evaluating the Integrative Complexity of Main Characters in Horror Films. Mm-hmm. And so she sampled 40 horror films and looked at the characters based on gender, whether the character's the film's hero or the monster killer. And used Rotten Tomatoes to look at the critical response to the film. And I thought this was interesting. Her findings reveal that films that were called fresh films featured male characters with significantly higher integrative complexity scores than the female characters. Whereas there was no significant difference between female and male male characters in just Rotten films. So she said that this suggests that positive reviews may be associated with or connected to complex male characters, whereas female characters are rather incidental to the success of reviews. So I thought that was really interesting, particularly because we don't really have a complex male character in in this film, but we do in some of the others. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is really interesting. I it, it almost it just almost talks about like I guess like a sampling size bias that within like if, if it's a critical group and I a lot of other people have mentioned this and pointed it out over the recent years. And, uh, but I guess when you have a critical group who is predominantly like white men, mm-hmm. like, I guess it only makes sense that that group would be like partial to stories that are about them. It's not, a, I don't think that's intrinsically a bad thing. It's more just like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. The, we should let more people in more people should, uh, more critics of all, of all types should be allowed in and yeah. have more of that. 
And I think tied interesting observation, I think it is. And I think tied into that is not only like you said, that we tend to sort of identify more with people that that share identity characteristics that we claim. But also just I would be curious to know, because I haven't read the entire piece, whether or not she considers the fact that there's also just maybe more films that build complex male characters, particularly complex white male characters, because there's just certain certain characters that are underdeveloped, right? Certain types of characters. The other one I want to mention, because I I thought it was really fascinating how many quantitative analyses there were. I don't really do a lot of quantitative uh, research in my in my own life because I didn't I was never really taught how to do it. And now I feel like an imposter if I do it. But like, I find it so fascinating. So the other article is embodying the moral code 30 years of final girls and slasher films by Angela Weaver, Christine Cabrera and a Donna Menard. And they they said there's been a, obviously a lot, a lot of scholarship on the final girls, but there's not been a lot of like quantitative, you know, if we like, can we go through and code how many instances of this, how many instances of that? And it was interesting to see where things were supported. And in terms of like the definition we built of final girl, what of the film supported it? So some of the things that I thought were interesting is that that it does appear based on on the data that there are certain sexual transgressions, that's in quotes, that are more problematic than others in the world of slasher films. So a final girl might be allowed to kiss her boyfriend, but she just can't violate certain lines of what what's acceptable. And we see that with Alice, right? Like we we know that she's had some sort of romantic relationship with the guy opening up the camp, but because right. we don't see it on screen, right? It's quote safe. And then I thought this was interesting. So they talk about the fact that people have argued that the final girl is an empowering figure who survives partially due to her rejection of traditional female roles. And they said that this theory was supported by the results of the study, which showed that final girls were twice as likely to be characterized as androgynous compared with other primary female characters. So I thought that was interesting, the ways that that they're sort of digging into this quantitative analysis and proving that some of the things that Carol Clover has set up are present, right, in these films. And of course, then there's the Friday the 13th at 40, the horror homeroom, which just has a great, a bunch of great stuff. But I really actually rather enjoyed the character of Alice. And I don't think I remember enjoying her very much the last time I watched the film, because she's not very interesting in a lot of respects. But this time around, I felt I just I felt like there were a little bit more some more nuances to her. Like I liked the fact that she liked the strip monopoly game, you know, like she wasn't, Mm -hmm. she wasn't a, she's an active character. Yeah, she is. She she chooses to go investigate a lot of these things. She is the one who instigates a lot of the like worry and concern around. Yes. She's never judging characters for what they're doing. Sometimes she's a little naive because she's like, I wonder where so-and-so are. And everyone else is like, we know where, (laughs) where they are. Uh, but she uh, she never judged anyone for the things they were doing, either in terms of work or not working or in terms of sex. She she just felt like she was someone that people liked, which isn't always yeah. true. I don't think of the final girl. And I wonder maybe some of it uh, has been I, I think for me, I've liked this character become a little bit more sympathetic to this character and this portrayal after reading the final girl support group. Yes. And this equivalent in that novel was very very sympathetic and this franchise was treated very sincerely in that novel and made me appreciate it in a different way and then also i think set me up to allow enjoy this performance in a different way than i had the first time 
I think that's really learning clever. That's oh, a cl- uh, that's a really clever observation. I think that that's and, yeah. I, I think I think it's true. I don't think I had per- I didn't really particularly have any strong positive feelings towards this franchise until I read that novel, and I think that Grady Hendrix really turned me around at least on being able to see some of the more positive aspects of this franchise in which there are quite a few and then i think also age learning about adrian king's personal life mm-hmm. a little bit and just her i enjoy made me enjoy her performance yes. i think a little bit more too and i think the way in which alice is also depicted visually is very interesting you know she, again she's got the short hair so she's mimicking that more androgynous look she's her her shirt and jeans are, are very 70s, as is her like turquoise jewelry. But it also has a sort of like Western vibe to it, right? So again, it, it feels very androgynous because it's a button-down shirt. But at the same time, right, her name is Alice, as opposed to some of these other slasher films that, that give a name that, that usually isn't associated specifically with, with a female character. So there were some interesting ways in which this film situated the final girl pretty traditionally in that, that mold but then also some ways that they just sort of showed it as being a little bit different, right? Because mm-hmm. we do see that, that again, that camp guy whose name I can never remember, but the one who's shirtless for a good chunk of it and kind of gross, uh, you know, he, he finds her attractive. They, they've clearly had a relationship. So I think she, I think you're right that she's hasn't changed as a character. because The film hasn't changed, but my no. appreciation of how complex something can be with these super tiny tweaks really has yeah. been enhanced by your and my investigation of all of these different final girl texts that have been coming out over the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think that this film has ultimately, I think, been to me more interesting to think about than I think perhaps it was for me to actually watch myself. Because despite all of these like new appreciations that I had for some of the filmmaking techniques and the score in particular this time around was one element that I really, really appreciated and read. And I actually looked into it a little bit and learned about like how the composer mixed the score to include like based off of that final line that Miss Voorhees is saying of like kill for mommy and like built the score mm-hmm. around that like a little actual verbiage and then like only used the score in like places where the killer was and didn't have any other music or on top of it, any other place. So so a lot of these individual technical elements, I was really able to appreciate with this film. Yes. Manfredini, Harry Manfredini is, is, yes, you know, he, there are things that are good about this film that I understand why they've carried on. And there are things that are great about this film and the musical score. And like you said, not just the, the like, but also just, he says, the scene where the goofy counselor shoots at the arrow into the target and just misses the female, one of the female counselors. He says, it's a huge scare, but if you notice, there's no music. That was a choice, right? And so yeah. he talks about the fact that he would cut the music off so that the audience would relax a bit, so scares would be more effective. And every time they've released any sort of like box sets of, of his music, it's sold out immediately. And in having him be part of the the video game that came out i mean it was really important because maybe more so than jason himself and certainly more so than apparently the friday the 13th part of things i think i think it's the music right that is what makes this this franchise interesting and it's consistent yes yes all of these elements together i think 
make for a really interesting movie to think about. But I don't know how much I don't know how much eager I would be to rewatch it anytime soon because it is also still I think it is still fairly slow and particularly in the middle I think it really sags like in the time between their when like the counselors just arrived but before like the killings really ramp up there is a lot of downtime in there that I think not super big fan of and it is still pretty affirmative at the end of the Mm -hmm. day it is very much like a punisher for sexual deviancy even more perhaps as we were i was joking a little bit early you're puritanical in its messaging because it is miss Voorhees as a character is so sexually charged if that makes i guess because she is so fueled by this hatred of sexual sexual desires among the youth and i'm (laughs) I'm glad that you brought up the the concept of puritanical because one of the articles in the horror homeroom is by someone named Wade Newhouse. And the article is called The Origins of Crystal Lake, Captivity, Murder, and an All-American Fear of the Woods. And Newhouse does something really interesting that I hadn't thought about. And that is that they take us all the way back to the 1682 account, The Sovereignty and Goodness of God, or a narrative of the captivity and restoration of Mrs. Mary Rawlinson. So it is very possible that at some point, if you are in uh, America, that you had to read at some point some snippet of the Mary Rawlinson story. Uh, she was captured in 1676 by a group of Wampanoag warriors when they attacked the town of Lancaster, Massachusetts. They carried her wounded daughter, who later succumbed to injuries, and then they captured Rawlinson, who lived with her captors for 11 weeks while they moved throughout the colonies until she was ransomed. She was the wife of a Puritan minister, so of course she saw everything sort of tied into divine grace. But what's interesting is is that the initial attack on the Puritan settlement begins with the imagery of the, quote, barbarous creatures who kill innocents in the woods. And, And then Newhouse says, this is imagery that would take hold in the American imagination and has guided middle class expectations of what might lurk there ever since. And, you know, he says that, like, he's not saying that Friday the 13th, they were like, you know, it'd be great as if we managed to build in this very specific Puritan text. But he does say the first few Friday the 13th films suggest some complicated ways in which summer camp horror might be seen as a distant descendant of Rawlinson's tale. First, there is the stereotypical associations of American summer camps with Indian cultures. And yeah, he says, even though it's explicitly <laughs> shown in, the, in this text, Many times, exactly too, the characters wearing of Indian exactly. pieces, usage of their bow and arrow, as as well as just, I mean, perhaps like this is even on like a native a, a Native American yeah. territory. We're not we're not privy to that because I, which I guess is just another interesting thing about American horror in general is I guess pretty much everything you could just assume if you go far enough back is like is on stolen land, and that is is scary for that exactly reason. exactly, and we have the. The quote town crazy who says that he is a messenger of god right and he's just saying you're doomed if you stay here and he literally is crying out in the modern wilderness and and then uh newhouse says in rollinson's time and in 1980 the murderer lurking in the woods is presented as a sort of moral corrective a puritanical vengeance that seems to delight in punishing bad behavior and i think that's that's really interesting to know that it's not just the slasher film tradition that, you know, Newhouse is arguing that some of these fears that are present are ones that have been sitting with us since before we were even formally a nation. Yeah. 
And I think we're also must have been like coming to a head at that time too, because this would have been around the making of this film and release would have been around the time in which the Reagan campaign was just ramping up and very, very much tapping into those old fears. Yes. And these attacks, uh, from the, that could come from the inside from outsiders. Yes. So I think this film would definitely resonate with that. And so again, like lots of really interesting stuff at play with this film. A, so a lot more than I think, uh, I originally gave it credit for. So I do agree with you that, that it is, you know, it is sort of slow in the middle. And I think what I find interesting is that it, it does go back to that, like you said, that sort of modern, you know, from the minute that the film starts, we're just going to be drenched in metaphorical or literal blood, right? That's just going to be like going the whole time. And yet, right, one of the things we've, you and I have talked about before that's really hard to do in these slasher type films is to make us care when the characters die. And so we we have these moments where we are hearing our characters say things like, you know, I, I have this reoccurring nightmare uh, where I'm caught in a storm and, and it's raining blood or no, none of the characters are inherently bad or none of them slack mm-hmm. off, right? Like they're all just good kids. And and we needed to see that so that we could understand just how, how incorrect Pamela Voorhees is. And so then there's this really weird way in which it is giving us this puritanical message. It is very much affirmative in so many ways, but I, I feel like it's also setting up the space to engage in a disaffirmative discussion because none of these kids are bad. Yes, I'm pretty sure that they're they're certainly drinking. There there might be some drug usage, but the only sex that happens is between an established couple. There is the implication that these are all older people. They're not in high school, right? The, the sort of thought is is that they might be like early college. They all do the work of the camp. None of them slack off. None of them are mean. None of them are petty, right? They're like genuinely good people. So there's there's that sort of weird element. And then there's also the fact that like some of what Mrs. Voorhees is saying is true. Like like the idea that for, for decades, we have thrown kids at a camp that often only has barely adults supervising them while they're doing archery and horseback riding and like all these other actually very dangerous activities is wild. Like the idea yeah. that that is just an accepted thing that you do is crazy. And we've talked about how many, how many horror films build in this space of this camp, like the, the campiness of camp. And it's still happening. And it's today, still happening today. Show. Right. And so in some ways, Mrs. Voorhees is kind of correct that like maybe a camp where they don't even notice that someone's in the lake drowning isn't a camp that should exist, right? Like maybe that is the problem. So there's almost this weird way in which the film, if it just had like a few more minutes to go a little further, I think could have done what Nightmare on Elm Street did and present us with something that is sort of ambiguous about whether or not it's affirmative or disaffirmative. I don't think it quite stuck the landing, but I think it gets yeah. really, really close because I think in the ending, it really gets messy and like it just kind of becomes the worst part of yeah. slashers, which is just like kind of incoherent, like slashing and jump scares. Because yes, yes. like the ending was felt really tacked on and it was uh, the like jump, the corpse, Jason jumping out of the water, still being out there, yeah. the medical sequence. That was only added in after Carrie came out mm. because they were like, oh, Carrie ends with a final kind of jump scare. Uh, they're like, I guess that's what we have to add in because that's what works. That's what horror does. And so they added in this other moment on top of it because the film was apparently just supposed to end with after 
Alice gets away. It been so much uh, better like that. And I think it would have been like, I think if it ends there, it kind of puts this kind of like, no one's right kind of atmosphere yes. over it. But then I think the fact that Alice is still being chased by this like all powerful immortal kind of thing from yeah. spirit from the camp, yeah. it kind of is like, oh no, she still does need to be punished. It's not over. This is bad. Like she, I, we, she did still do things that deserve yeah. for her to die. She's yeah. going to be chased forever. And that's where the franchise is going. So I, I've yeah. not seen any films past this, but I do know that Alice is not along for very much more right. of the ride. Right. So they do continue down that yes. kind of ideological strand for the rest of the franchise, which I'm, in, I'm excited to interrogate. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that, that if the film had ended before that lake scene, we would have been left with this uncomfortable situation where we have to acknowledge that our killer is actually just a grieving mom, right? Not a, not a good way to grieve, but, but a grieving mom. But the, the moment we introduce, like you said, the supernatural and othered, right? Like they have right. to remind us of how, of how wonky he looks and how supernatural he is. And, and then it suddenly just becomes about a family of killers, Instead of this this more nuanced, you know, she can't let go of her son, so she even like talks to him. Wait, and and I, I yeah, and then, very psycho, yeah, very, but. and and then and then we just suffer the results of Carrie and Friday the Thirteenth, where like every film for what feels like decades has been like, oh, got to have that final gotta jump that scare because if you scare, don't have yeah. it, the mo- no one will know the movie's over. So there's a lot of of blame. <laughs> To cast on on that decision to continue that particular thing. We are going to continue our examination of the Friday the 13th franchise for (laughs) what feels like quite some time to come because there are just so many films. And if there are every other film, it's going to take us quite some time to get through there. So the good news is, is that you will get to have us be part of your Friday the 13th experience for many months to come. But we are going to, for our next episode, switch back to our sort of like other thing we've been doing, which is the sort of vampire-y thing. Yeah. So we're going to go back a hundred years and we are going to watch the 1922 Nosferatu. Can you also believe a hundred years? Uh, yeah, that's wild to me. Talk, we were talking in episode 42 years, Friday the yeah. 13th, sticking around and having an impact. A hundred years later, and I'm excited to go back and, and watch Nosferatu in full for the first time. I know it has inspired countless things, and I've seen uh, images from this film, like stills, and I'm like, oh my god, yes, of course. And like, I understand how it has shaped the idea of what how vampires portrayed cinematically. Yes. So I am just so, so excited to go back uh, and do a deep dive into vampires uh, via Nosferatu. Yes. So please watch it. And, and if you haven't seen it before, don't let the fact that it is 100 years old or, you know, silent or black and white, although it's tinted, but but don't don't let those things detract or prevent you from watching it. It is such visually an amazing film and it, it is worth that engagement. Tony, in the meantime, in between people watching stuff for our next episodes, what else should they be doing? Well, you can check us out via social media, which is all listed in the description of this video. That's the best place to get in contact with us. Let us know what you thought about this episode and what you'd like to see us do next. You can also reach us 
via our email in the description. Uh, please be sure to rate this podcast uh, if you've enjoyed it, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, and if you didn't enjoy it, uh, that's okay, too. Uh, you can also rate that too. Any interest rating at all just will help us get better and let us know what you'd like to see in the future. Yeah. The other two things to that I want to make sure to say is if you're listening to this episode in May, it is not too late to join in Monster Mayhem 2022. You can go over to Twitter and see everything. Or if you don't have Twitter, you can go to our very exciting website, suchanightmare.com. Yeah. Woo! Exactly. Just terribly exciting that we finally have that built. And the other thing that I just want to make sure to say is to, as always, say thank you so much to Jackson O'Brien for editing this episode. It makes a world of a difference for us to have a team that can help us get all the pieces together. Thank you to you all for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day. <laughs> <laughs>